every Sunday in January, the whole month of January, we're calling one another um, to a month of prayer and awareness for these huge issues of mercy and justice, uh, be it in our region, in our nation, or in our world. And this morning, we're focusing specifically on the sanctity of human life. Okay, what's the sanctity of human life? It's a really broad category. Uh, It tends to focus mainly on either beginning of life kinds of issues, things like abortion, or end-of-life issues, uh, like physician-assisted suicide, things like that. But as Will really clearly and helpfully mentioned this morning, it has to do with seeing the value and worth of every human life because, as we've been seeing about all of these issues, because people are image-bearers of God. Um, They have more worth, inherent worth, that other parts of God's creation does not have in the same way because they bear the image of God. And because people bear the image of God, that also means that that's the the weightier factor uh, in them. The fact that they bear God's image, not personal preference, not choice, is meant to be the determining factor in how we think about what is good and bad, what is right and wrong in in the world. Before we we learn a little bit more, just, just something that's really essential for us to address this morning. We have to, as Christians to be faithful to our call as the people of God. We have to find a way to call the things that are evil and unjust in our world, we have to call them evil, while at the same time extending the mercy of God to people who have been involved in those evils. We have to be able to find a way to do both of those things. And so I know for sure that some of you here in the, in the room this morning have experienced the pain of abortion. Just from my own relations and conversations, uh, I know of at least two. And statistically, it's more like 10 or maybe even 20 women in the room who have had an abortion at some point in their life. And you need to hear, if, if that's you, or if you've been involved in helping someone else get an abortion, or if you're a, a medical professional who has performed abortions, or if you're um, someone who has been involved in that in any way, shape, or form, you need to hear that when we call this thing unjust or call this evil, We're doing that at the very same time, holding out the offer of God's mercy to you. You're not, as Will said, beyond the grace and forgiveness of God. And even more than that, you're not beyond the grace and forgiveness and friendship of other Christians who condemn that as as being wrong. Um, So be welcomed in that. Apart from God's mercy toward us, none of us have a hope in the world. So whatever the specific thing of that is, we want to always be people who offer the same mercy that we ourselves are so dependent on. And that's true for those of you who have been involved or suffered the shame or pain of, of abortion in your life. Doing both of those things together, calling, calling abortion unjust and wrong, and also caring for people who have experienced that, it's one of the many reasons that I really appreciate an organization called the Capital Area Pregnancy Center. Uh, and I'm going to invite Sandy Ziola to come up and share a little bit with us this morning. Uh, many of you will know Sandy and Steve. Uh, they have been in covenant here with Liberty um, for probably about two years or so now. Uh, You also will maybe recognize their friendly faces from being at the welcome table periodically. Uh, Sandy started out as a volunteer uh, with the Capital Area Pregnancy Center, the CAPC, as we'll call it for short, uh, and now uh, is is employed by them. Uh, And she's going to share just a little bit with us this morning about the current state uh, of this issue, the work the CAPC does, and how we can be involved in that. Thank you. Thanks, Sandy. One of the neat things about coming every Sunday morning is to see the beautiful babies that God has blessed us here at Liberty. They're just, they're gorgeous, and when we look at them, we need to think that's God's image 
is being reborn into the world, and they are precious indeed in his sight. And God tells us very specifically in the scriptures what he thinks about life and how highly he holds it. In Genesis 1, we have the account of the creation of man and woman. And of all the things that God created, only man and woman was he totally involved with. He came down and he took dust and he made the man. And he took the rib from the man and he made the woman and he blessed them and he breathed his life into them. And so life is so precious to God. In Psalms 139, David talks about being created by God and being known by God even before he was. And he says, You have created my innermost being, and you have knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knew me when I was hidden from you in the secret place. When I was woven together in the deep places of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. And I think that these verses illustrate God's creative work and human beings begin long before we are even born. And then in Psalms 82, he tells us that we are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. We are to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. We're to rescue the weak and the needy. And I think these verses illustrate that God is the defender of those who find themselves defenseless, and he expects us to be defenders of them as well. Unfortunately, man does not think quite as highly of life as God does. And I wanted to share some statistics with you this morning, and they're not very pleasant, but I think we need to hear them. In 1973, Road v. Wade was a decision handed down by the Supreme Court, and in this ruling, women were given a constitutionally protected right to choose abortion at any time during their pregnancy. Abortion is now a common experience. At current rates, about one in three American women will have an abortion by the time she reaches 45. Moreover, a broad cross-section of the U.S. women have abortions. 58% of women having abortions are in their 20s. 61% have one or more children. 85% are unmarried. 69% are financially disadvantaged. And 73 report a religious affiliation. No racial or ethnic group makes up a majority. 36% of women obtaining abortions are white, excuse me, non-Hispanic. 30% 30% are black, non-Hispanic, 25 are Hispanic, and 9% are of other racial backgrounds. In 2011, 1.1 million American women obtained abortions, producing a rate of 16.9 abortions per, per 1,000 women. In 2011, 36,870 women obtained abortions in Pennsylvania, and that number has stayed Um, fairly even through the years. So about 36,000 women in Pennsylvania um, are having abortions. That's 15% of abortions per 1,000 women of reproductive age. And reproductive age, according to the report that I have, is between 15 and 44. So that's a large group of women that are participating in, in the abortion industry. That can be very discouraging. So where is the hope that we have and what can we do? Well, the Capital Area Pregnancy Center Life Choice Clinic has a, a main goal in that they want to help women to make an informed decision. Many of the women that come into the center think that abortion is my only choice in this unplanned pregnancy, and we want to be able to share with them that, no, there are other ways that you can um, be involved in the life of your child outside of abortion. We offer many different support services, all of which are free because we never want a person to be turned away, a man or a woman involved in a pregnancy, because they can't afford to have us help them. So all of the services we provide are free. We have um, advocate sessions. 
We have gals that are trained to be advocates, and they will come alongside a woman, and they will walk through as long as she will stay with the program through uh, counseling. We also have parenting classes. Um, many of the young girls that come in have no idea how to take care of themselves through pregnancy. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's going to happen down the road, so we are able to have classes that help them understand how to take care of themselves and also what to do when the child comes into their life. We have a maternity and baby clothing boutique. So um, expecting moms can come in and get clothing if that's a need that they have. Our clothing is from um, birth through age one. So that first year of the baby's life, the moms are able to come back in and get clothing for the little ones. We also have diapers, formula, um, all the things that a mom may need to help her over that um, rough time in having the little one come into her life. We also have an ultrasound machine so we can do um, screenings so women can find out if they are indeed pregnant and how far along they are. We have um, a registered nurse who will sit down and do pregnancy tests with the gals. Again, we have a lot of young girls who come in high school age, and they don't have any idea how to find out if they're pregnant or not. So we have a nurse on, on call who is there and will help women through this time. We also have adoption information and referrals, because that is a very viable way for um, a woman and a man to look at the birth of their child. We have an earn a crib program. Some of these gals do not have cribs and uh, the needs that they have so they can earn a crib. We also will give and talk about a, um, abortion and especially the effects that it will have on the woman and on her child. We do not refer abortions, we do not perform abortions, but we will talk about it and try to help the gals be informed of what this decision may mean in their life. And we also have a program called ARM, A-R-M, Abortion Recovery Ministry. This group meets a couple times during the year where gals who have had abortions can come and meet with other women. It's a very secure, a very private place where they can talk about their feelings and have someone talk to them as well. But the most important thing that the center does is we have the opportunity to present the gospel to women and sometimes to men who have never heard it before. And a quote from Ann Voskamp says, We only find out where we are when we find out where God is. We only find ourselves when we find him. We lost ourselves at one tree in the garden, and we only find ourselves at another, at the cross. And that's the greatest, the greatest gift, the greatest thing that we can do for the people that come into the center is be able to talk about Christ and his love for them and this precious child that they are, that they are carrying. How can you and I be involved? How can we be involved as a church? There is a prayer list on the table in the, uh, in the lobby, the welcome table. And we have a prayer list that comes out every month. And on it, there are praises, there are stories about some of the gals that come in, so you can pray specifically for certain girls during the month, and then additional requests that the center may have. And I want to share some really good news. In 2014, five clients accepted the Lord. So, amen, that we were able to preach the gospel, share the gospel with women. Forty-five clients had the gospel presented to them. We don't push the gospel, but if the gals are willing, or the guys and girls, if the guy comes along, if they're willing to hear the gospel, we have pamphlets that we can hand out. We're willing to talk with them about it. Over 400 clients receive spiritual encouragement and prayer. We'll also ask, can we pray for you? And in, I don't work specifically with the gals that come in. I work upstairs, but in talking with the advocates, they said they are amazed how many women say, yes, would you pray for me? Nobody's ever prayed for me before. I don't even know who to pray to. So that's just a really exciting thing that we have that opportunity. And there are a lot of Muslim women who come in. In fact, that number is increasing um, over 
the days and weeks, um, in, especially in 2014, so the clinic is able to cross racial bounds as well because the services are free and these gals are looking to have some of the needs met. So that's a, been a really exciting thing for the, for the clinic and the center. And also two clients in the pr are in the process of making an adoption um, plan for themselves. So that's always very in encouraging. Um, if you are interested, you can um, contact the center to volunteer. We need ladies um, to work as receptionists, to be that person who greets the client when she comes in, gets her paperwork started, is that happy smile, offers her a cup of coffee. So if you have time and you think that's something you might be interested, that's a possibility. Um, you can donate office supplies or baby uh, clothing. If your little ones are outgrowing their clothing and you say, well, what should I do with them? I don't want to give them... I don't want to throw them away. You can bring them to the center. You can donate funds if God lays that on your heart. And you can donate services and time. Last year, um, we filled 50 bottles during the baby bottle blast. Well, somebody has to take all the coins out and get them to the bank. So if you have time in the summer and you say, well, I could give a couple hours, that would be a great help for us at the center. And also we have in March, if you are interested in finding out more about the center, and how you can help. We'll be doing a pro-life training seminar. It's for a Friday and a Saturday night in March, and things that are discussed are, um, would you like to know more efficiently how to serve in the pro-area life? Are you concerned about the issue of abortion? Would you like to learn how you can make a difference? There are sheets out there. You can pick them up. And there's also um, a little black brochure with baby's feet on the front. If you flip it over, all the information for the center is on the back. Ways you can um, partner with us, our address, email, uh, website, if you'd like to do that, take some of those. And also there's a couple of business cards out there, one for the center itself and one for the ARM program. So if you know gals that are in an unplanned pregnancy and they don't know what to do about it, who to talk to, take the cards and pass them out. And also for the ARM program. If you know a gal who has um, had an abortion and really is struggling, you can hand that out to them. Maybe they can come in and get involved as well. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to you about anything about the center, volunteering. Would you pray for us? Um, that would be great. Pray for us. Pray for people who are affected by this and, and for us to be involved in serving and speaking. Okay. Yeah. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be your image bearer, that you have called us and set us apart to be your light, your face, your energy in this world. I thank you so much, Lord, for the children that you have blessed our church with. I pray for their parents, for the responsibility of bringing them up to know you personally and to grow in you. Father, I pray this morning for the women who are considering abortion. There are many abortion-minded women. Lord, who have never heard, there are other options. I pray that you would speak into their heart. You would bring them in contact with someone who might be able to explain. There are other ways in which we can work our way through this um, unplanned pregnancy. I pray for the women who have planned to carry their children, Father. And many of them are young girls, Father. And this is a, a new experience for them. I pray for your peace. I pray that they would have older women who could come alongside of them and lead and encourage them. I pray, Lord, for the center that you would bless it and bless those who work there, who volunteer there, Lord, who give up their time to reach out and meet women who are in sometimes a very difficult situation. I pray that you would just give us the courage and the strength and the words to speak. And I thank you, Father, again for your love. And we just are, are so blessed to be called your children and made in your image. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Sandy. 
yeah, would encourage you to, um, to stop by that welcome table uh, on your way out this morning and grab information. There's a sign-up sheet there as well. Um, if you'd like to just be followed up with by folks from the CAPC, um, that would be a great place to, um, to indicate that. I hear it's helpful to have a Bible when you want to teach from it, so I'll grab that before I get back up here. We are in the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, you can turn to, if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 890 is where we're going to be, John chapter 5, uh, for those of you using a different kind of Bible. Um, and as we're in this series in the Gospel of John, here's the key question we've been asking. We're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And in these passages, as we make our way through this book, we're seeing these different aspects of his character, of his nature. They begin to emerge. And we see that Jesus actually uses different approaches with different people depending on the circumstances. So in John chapter 3, he talks with Nicodemus, and he's intentionally confusing. Why would Jesus be intentionally confusing? It's because he is trying to humble Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes with a lot of presumption that he and Jesus are peers. And so he wants to um, humble Nicodemus and say, hey, we're not peers. You and I are not on the same playing field. But then he turns around in John chapter 4, talks to the Samaritan woman from the well, makes a very clear articulation. I am the Messiah that you're talking about. I'm him. And he does that because Jesus is meant to be the savior of all people, all nations of the world, not just the Jewish people. So he wants to be clear to the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, in today's text, we see another aspect of Jesus' nature and character. And it's one that has a lot of relevance for us as people who are meant to pursue and uphold the sanctity of human life in our world. And that is that Jesus is a righteous rebel. He's a righteous rebel. So John chapter 5, I'm going to skip the first uh, 15 verses there, but the quick summary is that Jesus heals a man who has been lame, who's been crippled for almost 40 years. Which is great, except for the fact that he does it on Saturday, which for the Jewish people is their Sabbath, it's their holy day. And so the Jewish leaders get really fired up about that, and they begin to persecute, it says, persecute Jesus, or prosecute him, uh, and attack him. So we pick it up in John chapter 5, verse 16, and we'll read from there. You can follow along with me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man." 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you reveal a ton about who you are and the work you've come to do in these words. Thank you for being this upfront and clear and for preserving the record of it that we might have access to it today. Would you teach us? Would you teach us how to be those who rebel against acceptable cultural norms? when we're called by your will and your Father's will to do just that. Guide us into that. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So John chapter 5 is a little bit like a law and order episode. Uh, There's a crime and then there's a trial. The crime, quote unquote crime, uh, it's twofold. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day and then he makes himself equal with God. So the the big deal with uh, healing this man on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath was meant to be honored as a holy day. It was meant for rest. It was meant for worship. It was meant for only those acts that were deemed absolutely necessary. And in time, uh, Jewish leaders put all kinds of rules and regulations around that. So they made all these extra rules and and, uh, regulations about how much you could carry or couldn't carry, how far you could walk or couldn't walk. And apparently, carrying your own bed was against those regulations. So when Jesus heals on the Sabbath he's, and then tells this man to pick up his bed and go home, he's making this man break that, that Sabbath command. Now on top of that, more significantly, Jesus' claims make him equal with God. And the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, rightly believe there's only one God. Uh, they believe that they've never seen that God. No one's ever laid eyes on that God. So clearly this human being before them can't be that God. So they think in their eyes Jesus is committing this crime of blasphemy, making himself equal with God, ultimately that would be 
the charge that the Jews leveled against Jesus and condemned him to, to death. Now, once these charges have been laid out, then the trial begins. Now, Jesus has been branded a criminal. He's been branded a rebel, rebel against God. He's breaking the rules. But what we see as Jesus begins his own defense is that he is completely justified in that rebellion. He's completely within his right to rebel in that way. He's a righteous rebel. Now, what makes him a righteous rebel? Three quick things that we see in Jesus' defense of himself here. He does the work of God. He's confirmed by the word of God. And he's driven by the love of God. He does the work of God. He's confirmed by the word of God. He's driven by the love of God. So first, Jesus is a righteous rebel because he does the work of God. He refers to himself as the Son of God. He talks about God as my Father. And in those references, there's a kind of intimacy and closeness in this relationship that doesn't exist in other relationships between God and and people. Um, We saw this actually a lot in John chapter 1 when we were there during the Advent season. But Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And there's just really no way for us to comprehend exactly how that works. Like how Jesus is God and also is sent by God, the Father. Um, how, how all of these different pieces work. How God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are these three distinct persons and yet all one God. What we call the Trinity. Like how does that work? We don't really know how that works. A former pastor of mine used to say, if you understand the Trinity, you're wrong. And I think that's a good little way to keep us humble in that. If you understand the Trinity, you're wrong. Like, we, we can understand pieces about how it works and how it doesn't work. We just don't have a parallel in our minds to associate with that. Once we start applying metaphors to it, we kind of get off the rails. We start committing heresies that have been listed in the history of the church. We just don't have a great parallel for it. Um, so rather than get bogged down in that, let's just let Jesus speak in these words. Let's just let Jesus speak. Here's what he affirms about his relationship with God the Father. He says that he does only what the Father does. He does the same kind of perfect and good work of God the Father. So there's like an apprenticeship relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Um, Jesus commits this quote-unquote crime of healing this man because that's the kind of restorative, redemptive work that God the Father has always been doing. And he does every single day, including on Sabbath days. So think about that for just a minute. Um, The Sabbath exists because in God's creating of the world, he creates on six days, and then he rests on the seventh. That's where the rhythm of the Sabbath day enters into our own practice and the Jewish people's practice. But the question is, does God take a vacation every Sabbath day? Does that mean God's on break to not be disturbed on Saturday or Sunday, depending on what your view of that is? No, no. He's still on Sabbath days upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's still sustaining life. People are still born. Life still happens. God still works on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, God has been working until now, and now I am working. I'm continuing the same work God the Father has been doing. Jesus also says, whoever honors him, whoever honors Jesus, honors the Father. And the reverse, whoever does not honor Jesus does not honor the Father who sent him. And the idea here is that there's such a direct connection between God the Father and God the Son that to experience one really is to experience the other. 
If you experience Jesus, you've experienced God the Father. Jesus will go so far later in John to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the one who no one can see. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Okay, Jesus also says, he's been given authority from the Father to execute judgment. There's a theme of judgment that runs through his words here. And he's saying there that he has been given the right to to hand down the verdicts of God on humanity. And he says that those who believe will have eternal life. They pass from a state of death to life. But those who don't believe are subject to eternal judgment. And God has entrusted Jesus to hand down those verdicts. Okay, the last thing that comes out from this text, Jesus accomplishes the Father's will. He accomplishes the Father's will. So Jesus is neither agenda-less nor acting on his own, purely his own individual plan or initiative. He has a purpose. He has an agenda, and it's to accomplish the will of the Father who sent him. Now, that makes Jesus different from other kinds of rebels. You know, when we think about rebels, we probably tend to think like the James Dean movie. Rebel without a cause, just because they can. You know, we're going to rebel for that reason. Jesus, as a righteous rebel, has a cause. Deep meaning and purpose whenever Jesus rebels against accepted cultural standards and norms. He brings the dead back to life. He heals people. All so that in his work, people observe the will of God. The restorative, reconciling work of God. So the main idea here, Jesus is righteous in his rebellion because in all of his actions, in all of his words, even in all of his motives... He's aligned with God the Father. He's doing the work of God. Now, second, Jesus is a righteous rebel because he's confirmed by the word of God. Confirmed by the word of God. How do we know Jesus is telling the truth here? How do we know? If you just search Wikipedia, you will find quickly a list of 35 men and women who sometime in the last couple centuries have made claims almost exactly like this that they are the Son of God, that they are Jesus in the flesh. That's just the last two centuries, and it's not even a complete list, just a partial list of people who have made claims like that. What makes Jesus different from the Jim Joneses and the David Koreshes of recent history? Well, it's that Jesus' identity and work is attested to by the very words of God, both directly and indirectly through other credible witnesses. According to uh, Old Testament law, Uh, which these Jewish leaders who are prosecuting Jesus in this moment, they'd be very well aware of that. Um, It took more than one witness to bring charges against someone, to condemn someone, or to defend yourself. You had to have more than one. And so Jesus produces not just two, but five credible witnesses that attest to who he is and what he's doing. God the Father is one of them. Jesus says here that that these, these people who are prosecuting him, they haven't heard the voice of God. But there are two times in Jesus' ministry where God the Father audibly speaks and confirms Jesus and his ministry. Once at his baptism and once at his transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration. God the Father shows up and in an audible voice says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's God the Father as a witness to Jesus. And it's almost certain that the one who's writing these words in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, was there for both of those instances, on the Mount Transfiguration and at Jesus' baptism. Okay, John the Baptist is a second witness. John the Baptist, 
as we've seen a lot about his life and ministry, he's a public figure known to these Jewish leaders. And he testifies to the identity of Jesus. He says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. This is the one who I have been preparing the way for. And then John the Baptist willingly takes a step back that Jesus might increase. Third witness, Jesus' own works. So he's been performing these supernatural and miraculous signs in full view of the public. And the Jewish leaders in that, they miss the forest for the trees. It would almost be funny in some instances if it weren't so tragic. But think about this. A man who hasn't been able to walk for almost 40 years, four decades, has just been healed. And they're mad at him for carrying his bed home. Like the bed should not be the focal point at that point in time. That should not be the focal point. Jesus has just given this man a new dimension of life that he hasn't experienced for 40 years. This would be like giving someone who's been homeless for 40 years a house and then yelling at them for missing trash collection day. Like, maybe we're off a little bit in what we're focusing on in that moment. We're missing the point. Fourth witness, Scripture. Uh, If Jesus wasn't already on common ground with these leaders, now he for sure is. He's appealing to their own sources. He says, you search the Scriptures for life, but you miss the fact that they point to me. All of the Old Testament scripture points to Jesus, either the need for him or the promise that he's coming to fulfill the redemptive work of God. Luke 24, Jesus himself gives this great lesson to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says there that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So scripture itself is a witness to Jesus and his identity and work. And then lastly, Moses, the fifth witness. Identity with Moses is a badge of honor for the Jewish people. He's the great leader of the Exodus. He's the receiver of commands from God. On and on. But Moses himself is now witnessing against these people. They've not seen the fulfillment of what Moses himself prophesied was coming. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, There will be another like me from among you who is raised raised up, and you should listen to him. And Moses now is being called as a witness, not for the Jewish people, but against them. They have not seen the fulfillment of what he has prophesied in that. So through the word of God, directly and indirectly through these witnesses, we see here, Jesus is who he says he is. He is who he says he is, so he's righteous in his rebellion. Now third, Jesus is a righteous rebel because he's driven by the love of God. He does the work of God. He's confirmed by the word of God. He's driven by the love of God. Okay, why is Jesus healing people? Why is he claiming to be equal with God? Why is he even in the world in the first place? It's because he wants people to see him and see his very work, the work of God, and to believe, and to believe, in believing, pass from life, from death to life. He wants people to believe these credible witnesses about him so that they might be saved. He says, I say these things to you that you might be saved. Jesus could testify to his own identity, but he, does, he goes an extra step and finds five credible witnesses so that people might actually believe and be saved. So bottom line, Jesus is driven by the love of God. It's, it's that God so loved the world. That's why Jesus is in the world in, in the first place. But the same thing can't be said here 
about these Jewish leaders. And at the end of the trial, I don't know if you picked up on that as we were reading through it, at the end of the trial, the whole thing gets turned around. Jesus starts as the defendant in this trial. He ends as the prosecutor. He starts as the defendant. He ends as the prosecutor. And that actually was acceptable in judicial proceedings in the first century. There's a difference between our court system and these court systems. In our court systems, a judge or a jury, they make really limited scope decisions about the guilt or innocence of a person on a particular action. Did this person do it or not do it? That's kind of the scope. But in the first century, in, these, in this context, in the courtroom, the pursuit wasn't just guilt or innocence on a particular action. It was, let's figure out what is true. And there's a difference. There's a big difference. Let's figure out what actually happened in this scenario. So people who were false witnesses, who brought false accusations, if they were discovered to be false, could in that very same trial have the whole thing turned around on them. They could be prosecuted themselves in that very moment. And that's exactly what happens here. So what's Jesus' judgment on these Jewish leaders? Verse 42. You do not have the love of God within you. You lack love. It's not an intellectual problem. It is a deep spiritual sickness that these Jewish leaders are experiencing. They love things about God. They love the religion of God. But unlike Jesus, they don't deeply love God himself. They don't have the love of God within them driving a love for others. To be a righteous rebel, you have to be driven by a deep love for God and that kind of love that God has for the world. So let's bring all these pieces together. Who is Jesus a rebel against? Who is Jesus a rebel against? It's not God. He's a rebel against the corruption of God's heart and God's intent for the world. He's a rebel against the obstacles that keep people from experiencing the mercy and grace of God. On the the cosmic and the eternal level, Jesus isn't a rebel at all. We're the rebels. Sin is the rebellion. On the cosmic and eternal scale, Jesus isn't a rebel at all. He is, however, willing to be a righteous rebel when the circumstances and the situation demands it. And that's what he's doing here. And then because Jesus commissions and sends his people into the world, sometimes we also must be righteous rebels. God calls his people to rebel against what is dark, what is evil, and what is an obstacle to his glory being known in the world. Now, in Jesus' day, prohibiting a healed man from walking home, that is an obstacle to the glory of God being known. So, Jesus' crime here is only a crime in the eyes of a corrupted system. For us, there would be a ton of applications, potentially, but let's directly apply this to the sanctity of human life, because that's what we're talking about today. For several decades in our nation, there has been a systemic devaluing of unborn human life. It's completely legal. You are completely within your legal rights to do that. Our government accepts it and condones it. But only because we have elevated individual choice as the primary decision maker about something being right or wrong. And think about the, think about the absurdity of, of this. If a woman is on her way 
to an abortion clinic to, to get an abortion. And as she's getting out of her car in the parking lot, she's mugged. And she's hit in the stomach, and she loses the baby. The person, the mugger, rightfully so, is charged with manslaughter in that case. But if she were to have made it five more minutes and five more steps into the clinic, it's not manslaughter. Now it's actually a completely legal service you pay someone else to do. Okay, that is inconsistent. That is wrong. That is dark. That is evil. That is evil. So in the sight of God, the system is corrupted. The system's corrupted, and that means that as the people of God, we have to pursue the kind of rebellion that Jesus models in this text. In whatever ways we can, we have to refuse to accept things that are obstacles to God's heart and God's intent. How we do that is of utmost importance. It matters. And we take our cues from Jesus. So as righteous rebels, we got to do the work of God. We have to still operate under the authority of God. We're not independent and autonomous as we do that. Any righteous rebellion by God's people finds its deep meaning and purpose in the will of God. So here's the idea. If you just want to be a rebel for being a rebel's sake, that's easy. That's easy. Just find someone who's a little bit more conservative than you are, and you will feel like a bad boy or bad girl immediately. I get to experience both sides of this as a pastor when I hang out with Christians from other tribes than I am. Uh, in some circles, I show up and I feel like I'm the Fonz. You know, like give me my leather jacket and my motorcycle because I am a bad boy. But then, really quickly, I hang out with another group of people, and all of a sudden, I'm like the pastor from Footloose. You know, no rock music or dancing in this town. I feel like that guy. I feel like the establishment. Okay, the point isn't being a rebel. The point isn't being a rule follower. The point is doing the work of God according to the will of God to the glory of God. And that's that's what Jesus is saying here. The work of God according to the will of God to the glory of God. How do we know what that is? Well, righteous rebels are confirmed by the word of God. And for us... Our credible witness is Scripture. That was one of the five for Jesus. That's the one that we look to as our primary source. And Sandy shared these three great passages that, that serve as our credible witness to be righteous rebels against the devaluing of human life. Genesis 1, people are image bearers of God. Psalm 139, God's creative work begins long before people are born, long before they're out of a mother's womb. Psalm 82 God is a defender of those who are defenseless, and who better fits that category than unborn human beings who can't speak up for themselves? Those are just three of of many passages we could look to. But that's the basis for a righteous rebellion in this. Um, When we take core biblical convictions out of the picture, we lose any objective footing for fighting against what's evil and unjust in the world. We immediately lose that when we take this out of the picture. Maybe we'll fight some kinds of injustice because it's trendy or because the majority of our world or our culture thinks that's wrong in this particular moment in history. But here's the question. Do we really want to be subject to the court of fleeting human opinion to decide which ones of these things we let slide and which ones of these things we actually fight for? We don't want to be subject to that, to just what's trendy or what's popular or what the majority of people agree with? If we, th- if we do that, how will we ever heed the call to be agents of God's mercy and reconciliation in the world? We won't. 
So through Scripture as our credible witness, we as Christians have the only sustained objective reason to fight all injustices against human beings as image bearers of God, even and especially when that's not popular or when that's not the majority opinion, as is the case with abortion law. So we need to be the ones then leading the charge to uphold the sanctity of human life. And then lastly, righteous rebels are driven by love. We're driven by love. We can have all the right views, all the right convictions and beliefs in this, and still lack love. Whether we're in a position of defending truth, whether we're in a position of rebelling against an obstacle to God's purposes, the question we have to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves at the deep motive level is, are we doing this? Is this being driven by deep and genuine love? Love for God and God's own love within us, love for other people. And I think that for most of us in the room, this is where the biggest danger lies. Right here. So perhaps some of you guys are here this morning, you're exploring what you believe, you're exploring what your deep convictions are, what the source of that's going to be. Welcome again to you. Glad to have you with us wrestling through that. I think the majority of you in this room do believe that people are image bearers of God, that God's creative work begins long before babies are born, that we're called to be defenders of the defenses. I think the majority of you believe that. The question is, will we make the same error that the Jewish leaders make in this text? Will we love the standards of God, but neglect the heart of God, the love of God? Will we love the foundational commitments of God, but then neglect to love the world in the same way that God loves the world? There's a deep spiritual sickness that can creep in when our love grows cold, when we lose our first love of God. And the longer that we're Christians, the longer that we're in this position of either defending the truth or rebelling against what is unjust, the more likely we are to either quit, forgetting that this love compels us to keep going and keep fighting, or we make it all about the rebellion and we forget to embody the love of God in the process. We're either cowards or we're brazen. Lack of love can do either of those things to us. Instead, our rebellion against Whatever it is, but particularly for today, the systematic devaluing of human life, that has to be fueled by love for God and the love of God within us. The whole point of our salvation is that we can love because he has first loved us. In Jesus, we have seen the love of God for ourselves, and now we can share that same love with other people. So our rebellion is saturated in that love of God. Now, this has huge implications for things we just don't have time to talk about today. Um, Like, how do we care for people considering an abortion? Or those who have had an abortion, how do we relate to the medical field and the medical professionals who have, have committed or are committing abortions or helping women do that? How do we exercise our democratic rights? And, and how do we pursue a rebellion on that level? What does that look like? What role do we play in caring for moms who choose to have their babies? What role do we play in foster care and adoption so that we can truly say there are no unwanted babies in the world? All of these things come into play when we think about this. So please learn more. Please don't make this your stopping point in this. Pray with us, and let's pursue action in this together. But in all of it, 
May the love of God within us never grow cold. And like Jesus, when we're called to rebel, may we be righteous in our rebellion, doing the work of God according to the word of God, driven by the love of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we look to you as the one who has loved us first, who has extended us mercy at the darkest, most evil parts of our own hearts. And we're so desperate for you to do that because we can't do it for ourselves. And we're so desperate for other people to experience it. And I pray, God, that you would offer your mercy and grace to all in our midst and all in this region and all in this nation who have participated in some way devaluing human life. God, may we be righteous rebels filled with love as we rebel, but may we not put down the call that you've given us to be involved in this, to uphold your your truth and your light, to push back what is dark and evil in our world. You have sent us into the world that you love just as you sent Jesus into the world that you love. May we learn from him, and may more than even learning from him, may we constantly look to him for the love that he has given us through his own death and resurrection. Remind us of that as we come to your table and celebrate today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.